You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Carrie Burton. I serve on our Connections team. I'll be reading out of 1 Timothy verses 1 through 11. If y'all open your Bibles with me, um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one um, in your seat back in front of you. So that's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by serving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, and if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of, of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, sister. Church family, I'm going to go on a wild guess and say there's a car alarm going off right outside to my left here. Uh, so maybe anybody in this room that's parked near the deck, or if you're watching this in the fellowship hall and you park near the deck, you might want to check it out. Maybe hit the old stop button there on your keys. We'll get going. Otherwise, it's great. It's going to provide a nice cadence to my preaching here this morning. <laughs> that I'll happily get behind. Um, I am excited. We are jumping into a brand new series here at Northway this morning. Those of you who've been around Northway for a while, you remember that we spent a, a good, bit, good bit of time in, um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. Uh, we were there for about two years. I mentioned some of y'all met, married, raised your families during that time that we were in that series. But we are transitioning. We go kind of rotate books here at Northway. We go Old Testament, New Testament, back and forth. So we are entering into the New Testament here for this spring. Um, and uh, here's the deal. Here's the question I want to ask you right out of the gate. And maybe have you ever wondered, given serious thought, to why do we gather as a church? Like, why do we do what we do as a church? You ever thought about this? Like, maybe even if you've been in church a while, go back to, um, go back to when you first visited a church. Remember how foreign it felt? How weird this kind of club looking thing felt that we were in? Like, what's happening? Why do we sing the songs that we sing? Why do we pray the prayers that we pray? Why do we pass around shot glasses uh, with cheap Welch's grape juice in it and stale crackers? Um, Ah, it's gone away. 
Why is there a sermon at every song or every, every, every preaching uh, gathering that we have? What should the sermons be focused on? Are they, are they meant to be hot topics of the day that we culturally engage with? Uh, is it meant to be book by book? Is it meant to be something else in scripture? Um, why do we, why do we gather on Sunday mornings? Who leads this thing anyways? How are they qualified to be leaders in the church? Why do some churches, when it comes to these offices of elders and deacons, some have men and women in them and some only have men? Why are some paid and some are volunteer? You know, why, why do I even give money to the church anyways? Or what should we even be doing on the other six days of the week that we're not gathered here in this place? How is the church supposed to engage a lost world? Who, is, who are the ones responsible for caring for the various needs in our church or even in the community around us? I mean, all these questions, if you've ever asked them, they're important questions. They matter. And depending upon what local church you attend, the answers to those questions may vary some in extreme form. And so for the sake of our time uh, in the series we're about to enter into, we don't want to spend time looking at other churches, comparing to other churches. We don't want to look at our preferences. We want to open God's word and we want to read what does God have to say about these things if he is indeed the one who designed uh, our purpose as a church to begin with. So for the next few months, we're going to look at what are known as the pastoral epistles. Uh, They are in our New Testament, three letters that are written by the apostle Paul. He writes them to two pastors. That's why they're known as the pastoral epistles. They're written to two pastors um, uh, at two different locations. One is assigned Timothy is assigned to the church that is in Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey. Another pastor named Titus is assigned to the church that is in Crete, an island uh, uh, in Greece. And we are going to find out that each of these churches were facing incredible challenges around many of those questions that we just brought up. And the hope, our hope in this series is that in understanding what Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, wrote to these churches in their day about would inform us and how we are to faithfully function as a church in our day. And so we're gonna walk through these three books. We're gonna do so in the order in which they were written. First Timothy, then Titus, then second Timothy. These three short books, they're short, but they're powerful. I wanna start here in 1 Timothy this morning. So if you're not already there, turn to 1 Timothy with me. Chapter one, I wanna give you a little background. I want you to see it uh, starting here in the first two verses in Paul's introduction to this letter. He begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of our God and savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice, first of all, it is the apostle Paul who is writing this letter. The word apostle there means one who is sent. And it's very interesting because in our day and age, many people in the church feel a self-appointed call to be sent to particular churches so that they can instruct them. But this was not Paul. Paul was not self-appointed to go instruct the church. Paul was appointed at the direct command of Jesus Christ himself. 
with Christ's instructions for the church. We see this in Acts chapter nine, and it's deeply ironic here because you have the apostle Paul. Paul, who uh, was a Jewish man, but educated in both Jewish and Greek culture, was hostile to the church. He was a non-believer. He persecuted the church. In fact, he wanted to see every assembly like this shut down. And he wanted to see Christians arrested, imprisoned, and if possible, even put to death until he literally gets knocked on his rear in Acts chapter nine. And the resurrected Jesus Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why have you been persecuting my church? This is my church. And in a moment, he opens Paul's eyes by actually closing them so that he can understand this entire time he's actually been opposing the God he thought he was serving. And now changes course in his entire direction, now submitting his life, consecrated to Jesus Christ, and is given a call by Christ himself to be sent into these places where the gospel had not been preached so that he could herald the good news of Jesus, see men and women come to faith in Jesus, have the church established, and then strengthened in the instruction that God has given them. And so Paul is sent here and he's writing now to a young man named Timothy. Now, what do we know about Timothy? Timothy was a young Greek man who grew up in a place called Lystra, a small little town in what is modern day Turkey. And Timothy grows up there and he's in a divided home. He has a dad who is Greek, but he has a mom who is Jewish. And that's a hard deal when you have two opposing ideologies that come together and try to raise a kid in it. But by God's grace, Timothy is going to be more formed by his mom than his dad. He's going to be raised in a Jewish understanding of the scriptures. So his heart is ready. And then it is in Acts chapter 14 when the apostle Paul goes on his first missionary journey and he goes into Lystra and he meets Paul's mother, or, uh, Timothy's mother and his grandmother and he shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and then they complete their faith. They who've been waiting for their Messiah finds out he's come and they put their trust in Jesus Christ. And thus they share the gospel with young Timothy as well. And then when Paul comes back through on a second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16, he meets Timothy for the first time and he is introduced and finds out his faith is on fire. And Paul takes him under his wing and he mentors him. And then he even becomes Paul's traveling companion as he gets trained for pastoral ministry. Now, one of the places they visited on their missionary journeys was a large city called Ephesus. In fact, at the time, it was the largest Roman city in Asia Minor, and it was a port city. And what that meant is a port city, much like New York or Miami or Seattle or LA, you have all these ideologies from all over the world coming into this place, and Ephesus was a dark place. Ephesus was satanically fueled with magic and witchcraft, all kinds of pagan ideologies and practices. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul goes into this place and shares and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and unbelievable repentance breaks out. Men and women in droves putting their faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sin. I've said it before, the craziest thing, riots happened in Ephesus 
because businesses were having to shut down because they no longer had clientele for them. Can you imagine in Dallas, Texas, if the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed in such a way that men and women all over the city started turning to faith in Jesus Christ, forsaking their old ways, that businesses on Harry Hines had to shut down simply because there's no more clientele for them because hearts have been changed and rendered to Jesus Christ. And now rather than trying to gratify the sins of the flesh, they can't get enough of Jesus Christ because only he can quench their deepest thirsts. And now all of a sudden you have corrupt business owners that are mad because you're robbing business from us with this church thing. Man, what a beautiful picture. And that's what was happening in Ephesus. And so the church is now established there and it's beginning to grow and it's healthy. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul pulls the leaders of the church aside, the elders of Ephesus, and he warns them. The days are coming soon when savage wolves, false teachers are going to invade this church and they're going to do it from within. And you're going to have to guard it. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. False teachers have taken over the church at Ephesus. They're splitting the church. They're pulling people away from Jesus, not to him, with a false understanding of God's word. And so Paul now appoints his protege, Timothy, to go to Ephesus to serve as the pastor of that church and to shut down those false teachers and help organize God's church in the way that Jesus Christ has designed it to run. And so that's where we are. In fact, if you're looking for a great purpose statement for the book of 1 Timothy, it's found in chapter three, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy, but I'm writing these things. I'm giving you this letter so that in case I'm delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In other words, Timothy, this letter I'm giving you is God's blueprint for what the church is, why it exists, and how it is to function. You got to get this. And so, indeed, what Paul addresses first right out of the gate is the most essential thing when it comes to our gathered church like this. If you get nothing out of this entire series in 1 Timothy, get this first message. This is about how to keep first things first. I've shared the story before, probably a couple times in here. One of my favorite, my an old friend of mine, uh, he's a pastor friend of mine, but he went to the University of Texas. And when he was a college student there, uh, they were broke. They couldn't afford anything. They're living off cinder blocks and sleeping bags and mattresses on the floor, like any good college student should. And uh, until one day, remember, they, he found in his coat pocket uh, an extra like paycheck or money that hadn't, he forgot about, which is like cardinal sin in, in college. You don't lose money like that. They find it like, this point it's bonus money. So how can we do that? How can we use this? Well, let's get something to spruce up our place. The one thing every college student needs more than anything else, beanbags. So he commissions, literally commissions his roommates, go out and get us some beanbags to put in this place. And they're gone all day. Should have been like a 20, 30 minute trip. They're gone all day. And finally they show up in the evening. And when they show up, he opens the door. Behold, they are not holding beanbags. They're holding a ferret. 
It's like the inverse of Jack and the Beanstalk, remember? Except rather than going out and getting a cow, uh, they come back with magic beans. Here they come back with the magic beans. Um, and, and, and then they, they, they have totally missed the point. And you know, the church can do the same thing. We can get sidetracked. We've been given a mission. We've been told this is why we exist. But if we're not careful, we can spend our days chasing ferrets instead of the very thing that God has called us to go do. That's what this book is about. I want you to see, starting in verse three and four, Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, Timothy, I want you to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which only promote speculations. Now stop right there. The first thing that Paul wants this pastor to know is that in the church of Jesus Christ, we do not spend our time entertaining non-biblical ideas. One of the things that we know about this church in Ephesus, we're going to find out later, is that some of these false teachers were Judaizers. They were Jewish, Jewish men who had Jewish ideologies, but who were impostering as Christians and were negatively influencing the church with false teaching. And you can see in verse three and four, they were obsessed here with genealogies and myths. Now, what are those? Myths in this context would be human traditions that are not found in the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with that. There can be some great human traditions. We even have them in church history that we hold to, but aren't explicit in scripture. The problem with these guys though, is that they were holding them with the same weight as the scriptures themselves and making them binding upon Christians when the word of God never said so. In addition, they were obsessed with genealogies. More than likely, this has to do with an obsession that we know many Judaizers had, Jewish leaders, with the genealogies found in the book of Genesis. Do you remember in our study in the book of Genesis how Genesis is outlined? 10 Hebrew word, Toledot sections. Remember the word Toledot in Hebrew means, and these are the generations of. 10 genealogies that make up the book of Genesis. Why? Because God promised after sin entered the world that he was going to provide a redeemer and we are tracing that promise through one family line. The problem with these Jewish leaders is that they would obsess over the genealogies and their particular heritage. They boasted in the fact that they were of Abraham or they were of Isaac or they were of Jacob or that we were from this tribe or this tribe. And they they boasted in it and they used that as a special status to have power over the people. And they were tying their hope, their salvation, not to the object of those genealogies, which is Jesus Christ, but to the mere men themselves that made up those genealogies. These men weren't just entertaining all these ideas, they were devoted to them, the scripture tells us here. They were taking their human speculations and making them more binding than God's revelation. And that is a dangerous thing. Rather than opening up God's word and asking, what does God word, God's word have to teach us? What is God's word pointing us to? What is God's design that we are to submit to for our human flourishing and God's glory? Instead, 
these false teachers would sit around in communities like this and they would just pool their ignorance on various human topics. What do you think? What do you think? Well, here's what I think. And therefore you should follow this if you, wanna, uh, if you want special favor from God. In addition, these false teachers were doing something else. Jump down to verse six. We know they were certain persons, these false teachers, who by swerving from these things that we're gonna see of God's word, they have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I want you to note the progression of a false teacher in the context of a church, threefold progression. Circle these words, swerved, wandered, and teachers. And they always go in this order. You wanna be a heretic in Christ church? Here's what you gotta do, three things. Number one, quit teaching what the Bible says and begin veering off into other lanes of speculation. Quit teaching the truth of God's word as it is written and instead veer off and entertain additional ideas that contradict God's word. It is like when you are driving, that's the language, swerving, veering. When you're driving down the road, the road has been laid down for your good. It gives you stability. It gives you direction. It gets you from point A to point B. That is the design of the road. The way that you're not gonna stay on that road is when you begin looking off to the side. Something else catches your attention. Something else allures you. Something else is more attractive to you and you begin swerving. You begin drifting, veering into different lanes other than the one that was laid out for you. And then what happens secondly, when that happens, after you swerve before long, you are totally lost. You're not on the path anymore and you are wandering off into the wilderness of apostasy with no compass for your direction other than your own appetite, that which feels good and easy and seems right in your own eyes. And then thirdly, after you have swerved and wandered, you begin confidently asserting your own conclusions about God, about life, about morality. And you then begin finding some pulpit where you can accumulate followers of your own so that you can teach them and catechize them in your version of what you think truth is. And the whole scary problem is that you have no idea that while you're doing it, that you actually have no idea what you're talking about. I've never met a false teacher who thinks they're false. They all think they're right. And now here's the deal. Paul clarifies in verse eight, something about God's word, something about God's law. He says, God's law is actually a really good thing if you use it lawfully. That means if you know what it's for and how to use it for its intended purpose. Take the 10 commandments, for example, or take 613 of all the laws in the Hebrew Bible. They're all there for a reason. 
And they're meant to be a good thing when they are applied properly. In our day and age, 2,000 years later, what good purpose does the Ten Commandments serve? I would say threefold. Number one, they reflect the character and the holiness of God. You can read the law and you can have an idea of the righteousness that dwells within God himself. Second, they also lay out God's design for human flourishing. Um, They as opposed to what all the other nations think about how to treat people or what to believe, God's law actually lays out God's design for human flourishing. When you have an architect, they know how to design this thing for a certain purpose. God has laid out his law as a design for a certain purpose that leads to our good, but in our own finite minds, we think we know better and we come up with our own law. But they're good if you use it that way. But thirdly, and most importantly, The Ten Commandments are the law of God, all of the Old Testament, ultimately, when used properly, is meant to lead you to the end of yourself. So you're meant to read the Ten Commandments and not go, okay, yeah, I've done most of those. That's good, yeah. Or I've done all of them, man. I'm I'm kicking some butt right now. You're not supposed to look at it that way. You're supposed to look at that and go, woe is me. I am host. I haven't kept any of these. I've broken them. Even if you think you've kept them, Jesus comes along and goes, oh yeah, you never murdered anybody, eh? You ever hated anybody? Yeah, then you've murdered. You never had an affair? Oh, have you ever looked at anybody lustfully? Okay, then you've cheated. Like It's worse than you think it is. And it's meant to lead you to the end of yourself so that you can then call sin what it is, see it present in your own life, and then turn to your savior who can actually do something about it. That's what the law is intended for, is to lead you to the mercy and the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ, who loves you and gave his life up for you, who fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf, who died so that your sin could be forgiven by his shed blood, who rose from the grave so that you can be forgiven and made new in him. Like that's what the law is for, to point you to that. And so Paul clarifies, look at this in verse nine and 10, when Paul says, understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, Paul says here, God's law, God's word was not given for perfectly people, perfect people to obey perfectly. Why? Because that person doesn't exist. None of us are perfect. We've all fallen short. You, me, all of us. Like that person doesn't exist outside of Jesus Christ. God's law was given for the ungodly like you and I. It was given for sinners like you and I so that we could see our sin and repent of it. And what Paul does, he lists some examples. He could have given a lot more extensive list, but he listed a few. And you know that the ones he lists here all coincide with the 10 commandments. For those who are gonna disobey their parents, disobedient children, that's the fifth commandment. 
For those who are going to go kill people in cold blood, murderers, that violates the sixth commandment. For those who are going to engage in homosexuality or any other forms of sexual immorality that run counter to God's revealed design, that goes hand in hand with the seventh commandment. For those who are going to take another human being hostage and enslave them, oh, that's not loving your neighbor. That violates the eighth commandment. For those who are going to lie and be filled with deceit, it's violating the ninth commandment. In other words, Paul says, the law was given so that your sin could be named, your guilt could be owned, and that you could see your need for a savior other than yourself, namely Jesus Christ. And you could be driven to the mercy of God who longs to forgive you of those things who longs to clothe you in his righteousness and who longs to make you new by the spirit-empowered resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it's for. But that is not how these false teachers were using the law. They were taking those laws and they were actually adding new ones to them. They were creating additional burdens for God's people. They were misapplying God's law and saying, you need to do better. In fact, you need to do more. And that was creating more guilt, more shame without any rescue coming from Jesus Christ. That is not the gospel. That is not the good news. And that is not the way that you teach God's word. And you know what? The same thing still happens 2000 years later still happening in the church today. Rather than opening up God's word in the pulpit, showing our need for a savior and pointing to Jesus Christ. And we got churches that love to get off on tangents, dominate our gathering with hot topics and, and hot sports opinions on the latest cultural issues and come up with more to-do lists for the church and increase burdens and increase guilt and shame and, and offer no rescue or no hope in Jesus Christ. And this can happen so easy and so subtly by veering, wandering, and then dogmatizing and teaching and hijacking the various teaching venues of the church. So easy to do, which is why Paul tells Timothy, I have sent you to Ephesus to shut that down. And instead, to teach in accordance with God's revelation and not man's speculation. You see this, go back to verse four, the very end of verse four. Yeah, don't devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies like these guys are doing, which only promote speculation. Instead, focus on the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, this is interesting. This may be one of the best statements in the entire Bible about why we exist as a church. Circle that word stewardship, a stewardship from God. Some of your translations may say administration or dispensation, something along those lines. The word that Paul uses in Greek there is one of Paul's favorite words to use in his letters. Oikonomia is the, the word, oikonomia. O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-A, oikonomia. Oikos means house. Nomos means law. Put it together. Oikonomia means house law. We get the term from oikonomia, we get the term economy. Economy. From it meaning the careful management of someone's resources. 
right? In other words, the purpose of the church isn't to create our own economy for the church, our own laws and our own governance for how the church is to be run. We're not to come up with that on our own. Instead, we are to steward the household affairs that God has decreed. We are to manage those for him as he has decreed. If I go to your house, you have an economy set up in your house. You have a system of how your household affairs run in your house, your home, your apartment, whatever it may be. You got a a system set up for when dinner takes place or how it's going to take place, how chores are going to be done, what kind of TV viewing is going to take place in your home, whether you take off shoes or not when you come in the home, whatever it is. My job as a guest is not to come into your home and tell you how to run your household affairs in a way that are according to my standards. It's not my job. The same is true with God. As his creation, we are not to come in and try to rearrange the furniture in God's house. He has decreed how things are to be in his church that he has redeemed by the blood of his own son. And his design is intended to work out for his glory and our good. The church is to be a steward of those decrees. No human has the authority to come change that. Now, what is the household law that we're to steward primarily in God's church? You see it actually in verse 11. When he says, don't teach anything else contrary to sound doctrine, anything only that which is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel of God is this. This is the household affairs of God, that there was a creation in which God made everything visible and invisible that was perfect but sin entered into the world when the first man and woman wanting to be their own God listened to the voice of an enticer, the first false teacher, by the way, Satan himself, who said, "Uh, God didn't really mean that in his word. And the first man and woman went, you know what? I think you're right. Maybe we should change things. And they rebelled against God and a curse, a judgment ensued that canopied the entire earth and existence in which we live, where everything is broken, where man and woman are now alienated from God because of their sin. They are condemned to hell apart from God's intervening. And there is chaos ensuing in God's originally ordered world. But there was hope. In the midst of the curse, God promised he would send a redeemer a perfect one who would live in accordance to the righteous laws that we failed to live. One who would go and die the death that every human deserved as the penalty of their sin, who would absorb the very wrath of God upon himself that was coming for us. And he would take our place. And because of our trust in him for that event, his blood covers us, cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And he rose from that grave because he was unstained by sin. And he is God himself and he conquered sin, Satan, and death. And he is by believing in him, put his Holy Spirit within us so that our hearts may be made new, may be regenerated. Therefore, God's law now isn't a have to, it becomes a want to. 
And day by day, we are transformed more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ as we follow him until that day when God's son will return again and he will come and overthrow all enemies, eradicate all sin and make all things new for his people. This is the equinomia of God that we are to steward in his church. This is first things first. We exist for a lot of reasons as a church, and we're going to talk about those throughout this letter. But right out of the gate, the primary purpose that we have as an assembled church is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that comes by faith alone in Christ alone for us. That is what we are to herald primarily. And you notice the motivation that comes in our proclamation of that message from this pulpit and within this church. You see this in verse five. We'll wrap up here. Look at verse five. The aim of our charge. Remember, he just told Timothy, you're there. I'm putting you with a charge at Ephesus. The aim of our charge is love. A love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so Paul says the end goal why we exist as a church in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is for love. It's the opposite of false teachers. They didn't love those people who they're teaching. They love themselves. The end goal for us is love. Why? Because John tells us this in 1 John four nineteen. We love because God first loved us. Had God not demonstrated his love by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into our world, into our world and dying for us while we were still enemies of God, we would have never known what true love is. And if our God would come and send his son to rescue us out of that kind of love, then everything that we should do as a church and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others should be out of that same goal of love. And it motivates here from a pure heart, a good conscience, good conscience, the idea of clear, upright thinking and a sincere faith. That word sincere faith means unmasked. That's how it translate. It's the word of an actor or an actress who steps onto a stage and puts a mask on and pretends to be somebody else. We're not that way. That is called a hypocrite. They're faking something. That's not us. What you see is what you get. Beggars telling beggars where the bread is. Sinners who've been saved by God and now are calling other sinners to turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ out of the love by which he has given. You see, what we're going to find out later in this book is that these false teachers were peddling false teachings to try to fleece the flock for financial gain. They're doing this for money. That's age old trick still going on. Turn on cable TV. That's still what's going on today. Not only was their doctrine false, their motives were false. They didn't love the people and they weren't doing it from sincere faith. They didn't care about the glory of God and they didn't care about the good of God's people. They only cared about themselves. And 2000 years later, we have churches in our communities that are still embracing this. Church buildings filled with non-Christians being taught by non-Christians all gathered around non-biblical ideas. And so Northway family, I want you to know right out of the gate in this crucial letter in your New Testament, I want you to see from God's own word 
why we exist as an assembled church, not to swerve off course and wander into fruitless speculations about human traditions and our own theories and ideologies about what we think is right and good in the world. No, our purpose is to stay dialed into God's word, unashamedly heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our lives can be conformed to the revelation of God, not the speculation of man. And y'all, can I just be straight with you for just a moment? 2024 is gonna be a weird year. And there is going to be, we're gonna have to be very careful about what we stay centered on in the court of public opinion that is all around us right now. In an election cycle, it is gonna be very tempting to try to hijack the pulpit for political gain. There are already men and women in this church and other churches who regularly try to get me to stand up here and tell you, you need to vote for Trump or you need to vote for Biden or you need to do this. And they will say, this is a gospel issue. But here's what you need to understand. They are issues that can be informed by the gospel. The gospel does have application in these issues, very significant ones. That is true. Doesn't mean the gospel doesn't apply doesn't mean we don't create meaningful spaces as a church, Christians in a democratic society where we can get together and discuss and debate ideas on these things, by all means, do so. But please go out to Torchies afterwards to do it. Spend time discussing out there. What we need right here in this room more than anything else is to be reminded of our greatest need that has ever existed and as the need for Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. We cannot veer from that. We must herald that gospel. Oh, listen, I got plenty of hot sports opinions if you want to hear them, but it's not right here. I want you to hear God's revelation, revelation not Shay's speculation. That's what I want you to hear. Now, that being said, we believe as a church that we exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. And we are a church that is committed to believing, belonging, training, and sending men and women so that our city, whether it be here in Dallas or cities to the end of the earth, could encounter the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Paul's exhortation to Timothy is the same exhortation to us. We must guard the gospel at all costs. There has always been a temptation in the church to drift, to veer, to wander. But if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. And I would be remiss if I didn't say right now, if you're in this room today and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have never been able to step off the treadmill of self-performance where you constantly feel the weight that you're not good enough, that you'll never live up to God's approval. Can I just free you right now and say, you can't, that's the point. But in Jesus Christ, you can. If you would transfer your trust from your own works, your own religious merit, your own activity for God, and instead put your trust in the son of God, and receive the free gift that he has given you and allow the Holy Spirit to then come invade your life, regenerate your heart and reshape the entire trajectory of your life. He will not let you down. 
He will walk with you in the valley. He will walk in you the pain. And one day he will return and he will make all things new. That is our hope. That is our message. Amen? Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we need to be reminded. God, we need to be reminded of what matters the most. Lord, I know in my own heart on any given day, I can drift. I can get caught up in so many different tributaries and yet miss the very life-giving current of the river that you have provided in Jesus Christ. Help us as Northway Church to not get distracted. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing so that we aren't spending our days chasing ferrets versus the mission that you have called us to. God, we pray this in accordance with your good design that will lead to your glory and lead to our flourishing as a church and the mission that you've given us to herald the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.